Look, a very good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Another last Friday of the month, and it seems time for the Naked Scientist Kids Edition. And the lovely kids from Erica Primary joins us this week. And yes, they are exactly the same group uh, who competed in the World Robotics Olympiad and won quite a few prizes of the teacher and head of robotics club, Vernon Peterson, will guide us. He's on the other side of the line, and uh, we've got Dr. Chris Smith on this side of the line. And uh, the kids have got some great questions lined up for us this morning. Um, I haven't seen them, but uh, they are excited to be with us this morning. It's the last day of school, so how can a child not be excited on the last day of school? Dr. Chris, a very good morning to you and welcome again. Morning. It's uh, it's great to be the end of term. I wish I was in that position. I could quite do with a holiday, so I'm very jealous. You, we always tell children your school years are your best years and they don't believe you until they enter into the adult world. Vernon Peterson is on the other side at uh, Erica Primary. Vernon, very good morning to you. How is Belhar and Erica Primary this morning? Good morning, Zane. Thank you for having us. We are doing great this morning. That's the only thing I miss about teaching is the fact that there were school holidays and you can uh, sort of put your feet up for a while. Vernon, uh, you've got the kids on that side. Um, first question comes from who and what is that question? Good morning, I'm Kelsia. I'm 12, turning 13 this year. Um, and my question for you is why is Pluto not considered a planet? The answer to this one is that Pluto was considered a planet and then it got downgraded to a dwarf planet. Now, the reason and the rationale behind having a dwarf planet rather than a full-on planet is because Pluto is in a part of our solar system which is called the Kuiper Belt. And this is a massive belt of material which is out on the outer reaches of the solar system. And there are many objects like Pluto out there, as far as we can tell. So to call Pluto a planet would mean we ought to really call all those other objects planets too, which means rather than just eight planets, we would have 800. So the decision was made to downgrade Pluto to a dwarf planet because that way we could incorporate the other Kuiper Belt objects as they became known. It's a long way to Pluto. If you were to send a radio signal there, if someone wanted to listen to you on this program today, it would take six hours for the transmission beamed away from Earth to reach Pluto at, at the least. And then if someone wanted to answer back and say, here's an answer to your question, from Pluto, it would take another six hours for their answer to come back, so a 12-hour round trip. That's with uh, information travelling, of course, at the speed of light. It's a really long way to Pluto, six billion kilometres or so. There we go, Calcia Jaffas. I hope that that answers your question. Our second question is from... Hi, my name is Cole, and uh, my question is, what is the po possibility of multiple universes? Hi, Cole. Well, at the moment, we don't know. We know that the universe that we exist in definitely exists because we're all here in it. But whether or not this is the only universe, we don't know. There are a number of theories for a so-called multiverse, where there are multiple universes, and it may be that there's another Cape Talk with another Chris Smith and another Vernon and Zane and you in it doing a radio show today, but we have no way of telling it's there. Or maybe we have, because what we can tell by theory, and these are all theories at the moment, there's no easy way to test it yet, but what we theorise is that if we did have multiple universes, although they would exist literally on top of each other and we may be unaware of their existence, it's possible that gravity and gravitational waves could propagate between them. 
And so people are now building devices in order to work out whether or not there are gravity and gravitational waves coming from other universes or other entities that might help to shed some light on this. So I guess the answer really is watch this space, if you'll forgive the pun. Thank you, Dr. Chris. And uh, coming up next is Shante Jenica. Shante, a very good morning to you. And Vernon, the question from Shante, please. Good morning. Um, my question is, why do birds not get electrocuted when they're standing on um, electrical wires? Ah, uh, Shante, the answer to this one is that for electricity to flow, it needs to go from plus to minus. In other words, you need to have a high potential, which is the plus conventionally, and then the minus is where the electricity needs to get to. If you don't complete the circuit in that way, then there is no so-called potential difference between you and the electricity. So you've got to be part of the circuit. Now, a bird that flutters down and lands on a wire is merely connecting itself to one part of the circuit. It is not completing the circuit. If the bird had very long legs, like a flamingo or something, and it kept one leg on the ground and one on the wire, now there is a difference because there is a circuit there between the wire at high potential and the ground at very low potential, and the electricity wants to go from high to low. So it would go through the bird. So you could do the same, but please don't do it. You could hang on to a wire, and as long as you did not touch the ground, you would be absolutely fine. A bird can do the same. The minute you complete the circuit, and this is where many people come unstuck, because if anything you've got in your hands, including a kite, people have been killed by flying kites near power lines because the kite's connected to you, you're connected to the ground, and the kite then hits the power line, the electricity will come down the string through you into the ground, you're part of the circuit, and you will be electrocuted. But if you were only on one part of the connection, just the wire, like the bird, no potential difference. You won't get any power flowing through you. As a result of that, you will be fine. I hope that answers your question there, Shante. And um, coming up next, and uh, the question is from Cullen Phyllis. Molling to you, Cullen, your question. Is the universe finite or infinite? If it is finite, what is it expanding into? Ah, Cullen. Well, this is the, the massive question that we just can't answer. We have an idea of how old the universe is, and we get that information because we can see radiation that was produced from the very beginnings of the universe, and we can work out how stretched out the light in that radiation is, and that tells us how much space has stretched in the meantime, and that tells us the age of the universe. We, we can estimate the universe to be about 13.8 billion years. But the universe hasn't always grown at a static rate. It grew very, very fast in the first fractions of a second of its existence. Then it slowed down for about six billion years, but continued to grow. And then after six billion years, it began to grow increasingly quickly. And the universe is getting bigger all the time. And the more time we let go or goes past, the faster it grows. So the faster it goes, the faster it grows. We don't know exactly why this is happening. We don't know where it will end Will the universe reach a certain point and then begin to contract again? Or physicists favour the theory that actually what will happen is the universe will continue to grow now and it will grow at an increasing rate. And this is because as more universe is made, it seems to make more of this entity called dark energy, which has the effect of pushing the universe apart even faster. So it looks like it's a runaway effect where 
The older the universe gets, the faster it grows, and therefore the bigger it gets. As far as we know, this will continue to happen into the future. And so therefore you could argue that the universe is going to be infinitely big. There are some parts of the universe that are so far away, we can't get to them and we can't see them. But if you could magically get to the edge of the universe, you would see the universe growing away from you faster than you could keep up with it. So to all intents and purposes, the universe is infinite. This morning we are chatting to uh, the children at Erika Primary. Up next is Ali Bully. Good morning to you, Ali. And your question for Dr. Chris this morning? Morning, and my question is, what is the actual measurement of a light year? Oh, hi, Ali. Well, what's a light year? Well, we know how fast light travels. It goes at 300,000 kilometers per second. We can measure that, and that's the speed of light in a vacuum. Therefore, if you fired a laser and you recorded how far that laser would go, not in, a, not in a second, not in a minute, not in an hour, not in a day, not in a week, not in a month, but in a year, the distance it would travel in that time, going at 300,000 kilometres per second, is the length of a light year. So we talk about light years as, as distance because when you start dealing with how far away things are in space, the distance be, distances become so vast that it's more convenient to talk in terms of how long it takes light to get there because under those circumstances, it, it makes it a more tractable and easy to express issue. I could tell you that Pluto is six billion kilometres away. I could also say, well, that is the time it takes light to, to light travels at a billion kilometres an hour. So therefore, it's about six hours to get to Pluto. So it's it's a convenient way of making the universe a bit more tractable for us. It's just a measurement of distance, but it's how far light would take or would travel in that period of time. That was a question from Ali Bully. Coming up uh, next with her question is Caitlin Marie Clitter. Caitlin, good morning to you. And what is your question for Dr. Chris? Good morning. Um, and my question is, how will meteors form? I think the question was, how do meteors form? Is that mm -hmm. right? Yes. A yes. meteor is an impactor. It's a piece of debris or dust or material that's coming in from space. And there are lots of objects out there in the solar system. Much of them come from asteroids. And out between the orbit of Mars and Jupiter is a belt of asteroids, big bits of rubble and rock, stuff like that, which are left over from when the planets were forming about four and a half billion years ago. And occasionally, for various reasons, bits of this material dislodges or becomes earthbound. We cross the path of some of this material. Things bash into each other and knock each other off kilter and so on. And you end up with some of this material in the same patch of space as the Earth. And as the Earth's going around in its orbit, this material comes across the path of the Earth. And because the Earth has got a, a great mass, the, the mass of the Earth, if you put the Earth on the scales, it would weigh six followed by 24 zeros kilograms. So the Earth is very heavy. Because it's so massive, it's got gravity. The gravity will therefore pull the object in towards the Earth. The object will be going very, very fast, as in kilometres a second, and it will hit the atmosphere of the Earth. And as it hits the atmosphere, because the atmosphere is made of something compared to space which is empty the object starts to hit that atmosphere and compress it and when you compress a gas like the atmosphere very hard it gets really hot 
And so as the object comes in through the Earth's atmosphere and compresses the atmosphere, it heats up the gas directly in front of itself and that makes the gas or atmosphere glow and so you see a shooting star. And depending upon how big the object is, some of them make it right down to the ground and sometimes they land and sometimes they're huge. Sometimes they're very, very small and the really small ones just burn up and fall to pieces before they get near the ground because they're experiencing such high temperatures as they come down through the Earth's atmosphere. Mm. I'm actually sitting here and wondering if we, if we actually have any meteors or, or remains or sites of meteors in and around South Africa and it will be interesting to actually know and to go and visit them. And, you almost and certainly exactly have. You, you almost certainly have do. because um, oh, South Africa has some of the oldest rocks on Earth, not all of them. The, the, I think that crown goes to Western Australia for the oldest, oldest rocks, but South Africa also has some very, very ancient rock. And if you've got ancient rock that hasn't been resurfaced by volcanic activity more recently, then you will have sites of meteor impact meteor craters and so on australia's got lots of them because it's very old the rock hasn't been overlaid with new lava or anything south africa will have too so i guarantee with rocks of that age there will be some places where these things have come down and made impacts on the ground that could be found vernon there's there's some homework that you could be giving the kids today to go home and find out where we have these meteors in and around south africa our next question comes from divine hilsner divine good morning to you and uh, welcome to cape talk what is your question for dr chris this morning good morning sir my question is why do birds fly in formation when they're going to warmer places oh hi divine well, the answer to this one is that not all birds do that, obviously, because some birds just fly in big flocks. You can sometimes see a phenomenon called murmuration, where the birds take off and it's almost like a sheet billowing in the wind as this huge flock of birds fly around. But there certainly are birds that adopt a V formation, and the, the classic example are geese. And scientists have looked at why this might be, because the animals also change position in the V as they go through their journey. So the one at the very front switches position with the ones to either side of it at various points. And the reason we think they do it is because as they fly along in that formation, they are using changes in pressure and air turbulence that are coming off the wings of the bird directly in front of them to give the bird slightly to the back a helping hand. So it makes life a bit easier and it saves them some energy. And since these animals are flying at very high altitude and they're often making migrations which are very long indeed, by saving energy they make the process more survivable and more efficient for them. So it's basically an energy saving technique that means they're using the low pressures coming off the tips of the wings of the birds in front of them and to either side to help them to fly better without using quite so much energy. I hope that answers your question. And of course, um, our second last question coming from Troy Bikes. Troy, a very good morning. And your question for Dr. Smith this morning. Uh, hi, good morning. My question is, is it possible for a space between two objects to expand without the objects themselves moving through space? Well, I guess what you're asking is, is whether space itself can expand, because that's basically the question, is the universe getting bigger? And we know the universe is getting bigger thanks to Hubble, after whom the Hubble Space Telescope is mentioned or named. Because what he noticed was that when you look at stars which are coming from a long way, light is coming from a long way away, if you look at stars that are closer and stars that are farther away, the stars that are farther away, the light has been stretched out coming to us 
and the farther away you look, the more it's stretched out. This is called redshifting. And the only explanation for that is if the space that the light has come through between the star that made the light and us is if the space has got bigger. And so this gave us our first insights into the fact that the universe is growing, as we were talking about earlier. It's inflating or expanding. So, yes, it is possible for the space between two objects to increase, but that's on the scale of the universe. On local scales, like on the Earth's surface, the effect of gravity is very good at short range. It works well and it's powerful, which means that you don't see a phenomenon like that happening at small scales, but you do see it on the scale of interplanetary or rather inter intergalactic space and also um, interstellar space as the stars are getting slightly further apart. Troy, I hope that answers your question. And uh, our, our last question comes from Joshua. Good morning. Um, so today my question is, does every black hole contain singularity? Well, first of all, what's a black hole? A black hole is called a black hole because it's so gravitationally powerful that not even light can escape. And the the current theory of, of how black holes work is that they are something which is infinitesimally dense and small in space, which deforms or bends space to such a great extent through the effect of gravity, because black holes have a huge amount of gravity, is that they bend space in such a way that when a light beam coming towards the black hole hits it, it goes into a curve around the black hole from which it can never escape and so you see a patch of space that has no light coming from it so it's black and so we call it a black hole so notionally at the center of this black hole should be a point of extremely high mass and extremely high gravity which is what is causing the deformation of, of space-time the fabric of space in that way so yes in order for a black hole to work as a black hole our current theory is that that would be how it works it's a point in space that's bending space itself to such an extent that not even light gets out and so the answer to your question is yes it would have to have a singularity there thank you very much and uh, that brings us to the end of our session with uh, the the children out in Belhar at Erica Primary. Vernon, uh, you must enjoy the holidays. And uh, to all the children asking questions this morning and posing those questions to Dr. Chris, thank you so much. Hey, und was ist mit dir? Hast du auch etwas zu erzählen? Dann bist du eigentlich schon ein Podcaster oder eine Podcasterin. Du weißt es nur noch nicht. Egal, ob du dich einfach gern intensiv mit FreundInnen unterhältst, der Welt deine Leidenschaft näher bringen möchtest oder vielleicht auch dein Geschäft ausbauen willst. Das alles kann wertvoller Gesprächsstoff für einen Podcast sein. Mit Acast ist es kinderleicht, deine eigene Show zu starten. Produziere deinen eigenen Podcast, lass dein Publikum wachsen und verdiene auf allen Plattformen wahres Geld damit. Geh einfach auf acast.com, um kostenlos durchzustarten.